Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians. That's where we are today. We're going to give an overview of the book of Philippians, kind of a jet tour through this book. Here's the key concept today. The joy of the Lord grows in the soil of humble faith. We'll talk a lot about joy today because a key word in the book of Philippians is the word joy. Each of the chapters, we'll note, uh, has to do with a different aspect of how we can find joy in our walk with Jesus. But his example shows us that it's found in a humble faith. Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi. No church in the New Testament had a more dramatic beginning than the church in Philippi. It was Paul's second missionary journey. He was traveling in Turkey, wanting to uh, reacquaint himself with the churches that he planted in southern Turkey in his first missionary journey. He had in mind probably to move northward into the center of the nation when God consistently moved him westward. Acts chapter 16 tells the story of Paul moving all the way across the nation of Turkey, what we now call Turkey, till eventually he came to a seacoast town called Troas. And there in Troas, Paul had two encounters. One was with a vision of a man, a Macedonian man who came to him in a vision and said, come help us, indicating that he wanted Paul to go over across the Aegean Sea into Greece. Come help us, the vision of the man said. And he had an encounter with a flesh and blood man, the man Dr. Luke, who joined the team in Troas. And from then on, he traveled with the band. He was the uh, personal physician of the Apostle Paul, and he was the chronicler of the journey. The book of Acts comes from the pen of Dr. Luke. And, he, and so Paul crossed over the Aegean Sea, uh, obeying that vision. I think we have a map to show you exactly where this is all taking place. You see on the westernmost portion of Turkey, that's where Troas is. And he sailed across the Aegean Sea into northern Greece, what they called then and we call today still Macedonia. And there in Macedonia, the first town in which he preached a message was the town of Philippi. Now, Philippi was named after King Philip. King Philip was the father of Alexander the Great, and this is the town where he had his kingdom from which he ruled the, the kingdom of Macedonia, and then later greater Greece. But by the time Paul arrives at Philippi, it is a very Roman city. It is a very Gentile city, the most Gentile city that Paul has encountered thus far. In fact, when he gets to Philippi, Paul notes that there's not even ten Jewish families in that entire city. We know that because 10 Jewish families was the size needed to form a synagogue. And there is no synagogue in Philippi. So Paul has to change his tactics where usually he would go to the synagogue and preach the gospel and then take the gospel on to the Gentiles. Paul is looking for a place to begin. And instead of a synagogue, he finds a prayer meeting, a Jewish prayer meeting, meeting down by the river. And he goes there and he talks about what, he, what he's found in the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there's a woman there who's listening. Her name is Lydia. She's actually not even from Philippi. She's from Turkey. But she's a businesswoman. And she's evidently well-to-do because she has a home in Philippi. And she lives while she's doing her business there. And she gives her life to Jesus Christ. And in that moment of, of coming to faith in Christ, she turns to the traveling group and she says, why don't you use my home as your base of operations while you're here in Philippi? And that's just what they do. That's where they stay and from there uh, they, they, they live and reach out to the city of Philippi. And the story goes on to say that at one time, Paul and, and the rest of the group are walking through the streets of Philippi and they're being followed by a demon-possessed woman. And this demon-possessed woman is shouting behind them, These men speak from the one true God, the Most High God. 
Now, at first you might say, well, that's good, free advertising, right? But Paul doesn't like that advertising because actually she's a fortune teller and that's uh, what she does to, to make her and her master's money. She's a slave girl and what she's doing is drawing attention to herself. And Paul identifies the demon within her and he casts that demon out. And in that moment, she's no longer able to do what she was doing. Her masters no longer are able to get that income. And so they drag Paul to the magistrate, accuse him of disturbing the peace. And the politicians there have Paul and his band beaten and thrown into prison. And that night, as they literally are singing hymns in their prison cell, that night God sends an earthquake and the jail doors are thrown open, but Paul and the rest of the prisoners there do not leave. They don't escape. The Philippian jailer is ready to kill himself because he'd be responsible to do that if the prisoners did escape. But rather than harm himself, Paul calls out and says, don't harm yourself in any way. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer are, is so overwhelmed with, with gratitude and with confusion over what would make these guys not run for their lives that he asks Paul about what he can do to find the salvation that Paul has. And that Philippian jailer and his entire household come to faith and are baptized. And as Paul leaves the city of Philippi after really only a short time there, uh, he leaves with the nucleus of a church that will grow, Lydia and this uh, Philippian jailer's family. And now he writes this letter back to that church. Ten years have gone by. It's approximately the year 60 to 62, and Paul is now in jail, this time in Rome. He's under house arrest. This is the arrest that's recorded in the last portion of the book of Acts. And this church in Philippi has grown from that little nucleus of people into a multi-ethnic, multi-class, active church. And they have, throughout the years, kept in touch with Paul. In fact, they're the only church we know of that actually supported Paul financially, like we support our missionaries, sending him money. And they hear that he's in house arrest, and so they send him a gift of money along with a man named Epaphroditus. And Paul receives that gift, he receives that man and the encouragement that he brings, and then Paul writes this letter back, thanking the Philippian church for their gift. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. Aren't you glad Paul has good manners? Aren't you glad Paul's mother insisted that he learn that when somebody gives you something, you write them a thank you note? Because this is a thank you note, and it is one of the most joyful books in all of the Scripture. Paul writes this thank you note. And I, I was recently at home and preparing, you know, in my mind, preparing for uh, sharing this message with you. And um, I went into the study in my home and I took off, took off of my shelf the Bible that I used when I was growing up, the, 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 the Bible that was given to me as a small boy and I had all through my, my growing up years. And I don't usually read that Bible. I'm reading a different translation mostly these days. And, and, uh, but, but I just read through the book of Philippians in that Bible I had as a kid. And you know what I noticed? I noticed that all throughout the book of Philippians, I have what I, what I call the, the hit parade of verses. I mean, I have underlined verses multiple times in that old Bible, uh, times that I must have read that and was impressed with it, read it again and underlined it again with a different color or circled it or whatever. And again and again throughout the book of Philippians, I found those verses. Now, I want to share with you this hit parade of verses. I won't share them all because we don't have time, but follow along in your Bible and see if you don't have some of these verses underlined. Paul hits his stride when he writes to the Philippians. The first one is chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Chapter 1, verse 21, for, to me, to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but the interests of others. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 6, do not, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, I left a lot of them out, but do you see the, this hit parade of verses, verse after verse, that just speaks to our heart? Insightful, wonderful words Paul writes to, in the letter to the Philippians. But let's go back to chapter 1 because I want to look, look, look it over chapter by chapter and note with me the theme of joy. In chapter 1, the theme is you have joy in your salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3, let's read it together. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray with joy because you are partners with me, he says, in the gospel. Interestingly enough, the word that, he trans that the NIV translates as partnership is the word koinonia in the Greek. I say that because we're pretty familiar with that word, but ordinarily we translate that word as fellowship. But somehow the word fellowship just wouldn't convey exactly what Paul's talking about in terms of his relationship with the Christians in, in Philippi. Because fellowship has come to mean in our mind kind of a, a time of just drinking coffee and eating cake and chit-chatting together, right? We do fellowship, and we do fellowship very often in churches. They have their fellowship hall, and what they do in the fellowship hall is have coffee and cake after the services, and it's great to build relationships that way. I know of a church, their tradition is after the um, Sunday morning service, everybody goes into the fellowship hall. There's a committee responsible to put on coffee and cake and make sure everybody has a little time of refreshment. The pastor of that church was concerned that maybe the people, uh, and particularly the children, didn't understand why they did that. And so uh, one Sunday he asked a little girl, uh, probably around first grade age, why do you think we have coffee and cake after the service? And without a moment hesitation, she said, so that people can wake up and get ready to drive home. <laughs> That's not the reason. But we often associate fellowship, the word fellowship, just with kind of visiting and having refreshments. But that's not what Paul talks about here. It is right for the translation to say partnership. I thank God for a par the partnership. We have a mutually dependent par partnership. We're working towards the same goal. We're depending on one another to, to glorify God through the spreading of the gospel. And I rejoice in that. And they were partners with Paul. Ever since that first day when Lydia and the Philippian jailer saw Paul walking out of town and they turned to each other and they said, we've got to get this thing organized, they've been the partners that Paul has rejoiced in, being busy about the gospel. And it's all because of the work that Jesus has done in them. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. If you're a Christian today, you're a believer because God has done a work in your life. And God is continuing to work in your life. Now, that very fact, that truth in and of itself, is why you do not need to fear that you will lose your salvation. 
because your salvation is not your work. Your salvation is God's work, and you can't undo what God does. All right? God is the one. God is the one who's directed Paul's steps to bring him to Philippi. It is God who gave him the words to speak so that the people would be touched of heart and respond. And it was God who worked within them and within us to change us from the inside out. A Christian is not a person who's decided to change because of their willpower. A Christian is a person who God works within and transforms. And, and Jesus says that transformation is so radical that you are a new person. You are born again when you come to know Christ as personal Savior. And it's not superficial and it's not temporary. It is spiritual and it is eternal work. God will continue to work in you just like He will continue to work in the Philippians. And Paul says, you're my partners in that work, and I rejoice in that. And I don't want you to worry. Even though you've heard that I'm in prison, I don't want you to worry. Go over to verse 19 of chapter 1. Here's his confidence. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I, am, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. He says, I'm going to be delivered from this imprisonment. I don't know how I'm going to be delivered. It may be by life, and I go on in ministry, maybe by death. But when one way or the other, I'm going to be delivered. And Paul here is teaching us something that we must know as believers in Jesus Christ. If you know Christ and you're here today, there's no way you can, you can lose. There's no way you can lose. If tomorrow we'll, uh, we pass away, we'll be in glory. And what is this journey of the Christian life anyway? It is a journey to see Christ face to face in glory. If I were to die tomorrow, I'll get there quick. But if not, I'm still a partner in the gospel, giving him glory. So Paul says, I can't lose. Why? There's joy in salvation. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to talk about joy and humility. Because we have an example in Jesus Christ, and the example we find in Him is that of humility. Go to chapter 2 and begin to read in verse 4. He says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Jesus left the realms of heaven. He, he didn't think that that, that stature in, in terms of being in heaven with his heavenly Father is something to be held on to, but he let that go, he means, to come down to earth to take on the form of a man. He was humbled and a servant so that we could find salvation. Paul says that's the example of humility you should follow, and when you do, you find joy in humility. Don't let the seed of pride be planted in your fellowship, is how he's urging the Philippian church, because he recognizes that the seed of pride will grow into divisions, and Satan uses those divisions to stifle the work and hurt the partnership. But in the spirit of humility, he says, you will be able to serve side by side, and you will be effective in your service. Go to verse 12 of the same chapter. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God has a good purpose for you. And God is working in and through you. And he wants you to accomplish his purpose. And it happens as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's an interesting little point that that word we translate work out 
is actually a word imported from the silver mining industry of Paul's day. It was the process of extracting the ore from the mine. When the miner dug out that precious metal and, and, and brought it out so that its, its, its uh, wealth and its value could be seen, that's the phrase, work out. Paul is saying, I want you to extract the beauty of your salvation. I want you to uncover what you really have in Jesus Christ. Let it be seen. Let it be valued. And as you're letting it be valued, you do that with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is watching. You have an audience of one and you are, are, are responsible to do this well. And there's a sense of awe and a sense of wonder and a little sense of nervousness that keeps us on our toes. I want to do this well because God is watching. This past week, we saw uh, Queen Elizabeth cross a milestone. She's now the longest ruling monarch in uh, Great Britain. And it reminded me of a, a news report I saw. It was a while ago, but there was a, an, a Shakespearean actor who was going to give a command performance for the Queen. Now, it was uh, a Shakespeare, uh, you know, a monologue from one of Shakespeare's plays. And, and he probably had recited this monologue hundreds of times. He could have probably said it backwards if, he, if they asked him to. But he was getting ready to go on, and the camera was, you know, they were interviewing him. And he kind of, in a surprising moment, he said, I'm nervous. You know, I've done this hundreds of times. I know this backwards and forwards. But I'm nervous because the queen will be watching. It's, it's that sense that we're meant to grab when we hear Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is watching, and he wants to work in you and through you for his good purposes. What a privilege we have, but it makes us a, a little trembling at, at the idea that we're involved with what God is doing. Work that out, he says. Not for your good, but for the good purpose that God wants you to, wants you to accomplish. There's joy in recognizing that and being humble enough to be used of God. Thirdly, he says, there's joy in Christian growth. Go to chapter 3, and we'll, Paul is talking about the progress that we're meant to make as we mature in the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 13, he puts the focus on himself. And he says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to be growing. He's saying, you know, I know I have a ways to go, but I want you to see that I'm anxious to get there. I want to be the man that God wants me to be. And that means progress. That means keep going. He's not satisfied with his walk. He's not satisfied with his understanding of the word. He's not satisfied with his prayer life. Or he's not satisfied with his ministry impact. There's more for me, Paul is saying. So I press on towards it. And that fact alone reminds me of how aware we need to be of a weapon that is in Satan's hand against the church. He uses it quietly. He uses it subtly. But I, I call it the weapon of complacency. That attitude that says, you know, I got this this thing called the Christian life. I got it. Got it covered. The Bible? Read it. Know it. Got it. Understand it. The call to ministry? Been there already. Done that. I've done my part. The challenge to give? I've already given. I'm, I'm over that now. All these areas in which we kind of pull back, shrink back, pull away. Paul says, I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm pressing forward, pressing in, pressing on. I'm not going to look back. Every track coach in the, on the earth when they uh, coach their runners will say, it's important that you keep focused ahead. Don't start checking out what the other runners are doing. You focus on the finish line. And I saw an example of that in, in real life. I was watching uh, 
uh, preliminary race to decide who was going to go to the Olympics. This was some, some while ago now, but there was, these were a, um, a sprint race. And uh, these guys were all, you know, wanting to get to the Olympics. And when the gun went off, one of those racers just shot ahead. I mean, it was obvious that he was the, the class of the field, way ahead of the rest of the sprinters. But as he was running, he looked back to see where the second place runner was. And in so doing, he caught a cleat, tumbled down, and was disqualified. And it reminds me, it's an image that I just stay in my mind. I've got to keep focusing forward, and so do you. Paul says, press on, because God has more for me. There's always something next that God wants us to understand and to do. Don't look back. There's joy in Christian growth and progress. Press on. And when we come to chapter 4, he says, there's joy in God's care for you. Now, in the final uh, section of this letter, Paul is going to rejoice in the fact that God is listening, that God hears your prayers, and that God is working. But before he goes there, Paul takes a little detour. In the beginning of chapter 4, he detours to speak with just two ladies in the church by name who are squabbling. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. See, evidently, Epaphroditus, as he delivered the gift for Paul and sat down and chatted with him, Paul must have said, well, how are things going back in Philippi? And he gave him the update on the church and the church family and what's happening and all that. And he must have mentioned that, well, there's these two ladies. They just can't seem to get along. I think to myself, you know, it would be nice to have your name in the Bible, <laughs> but not if you're being scolded. And that's exactly, these ladies are being scolded. You see, their friction, their inability to get along is causing a rift in the church. And Paul, once again, is very sensitive to this issue of unity because he knows that if Satan can divide the hearts of the people, he slows down the gospel work. So he says, ladies, I don't know what the issue is. We don't know what the issue is. Whatever the issue is, get over it. It is not worth it. Move on together for the glory of God. And I want to tell you how you can do this. So now pick up the reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. They haven't been treating one another gentle, these two ladies. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but in, but by, in everything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You have a God who listens to your prayers. That's a, that's a passage worth memorizing, a passage worth remembering. When we're worried, when we're anxious about tomorrow, Paul says, present your requests to God. And I want you to understand that God doesn't grudgingly listen to your prayers. It's not like he's up there in heaven going, what, you again? No, that's not it. He, he welcomes your prayers. He, he wants your prayers. Present your requests to God. And then receive his peace. Not, not necessarily making sure that God will do exactly everything you ask the way you ask it in the time that you ask it, because sometimes God's will for us is different than our preferences for ourselves. But always you pray to God and you receive peace and this, this assurance. God is on the job. God is working. I've given him this over. I can let it go in his care and know that when he answers this prayer, it will be in a perfect combination of love and wisdom. And so, if it's a different time than me, if, than I had in mind, if it's a different outcome maybe that I had in mind, it's always going to be right as I present my request to God. Therefore, I have peace. 
and I can rest in Him. As we come to the end of uh, chapter 4, we actually notice the occasion uh, where Paul is responding in this letter to, in verse 10 he talks about how he received their gift and he thanks them for the gift and so forth. Uh, And then he says something interesting starting in verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I read that to you because I want you to see that verse, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, or maybe your version says, I do all things through him who gives me strength. We often quote that verse, but notice with me, it's stated in the context of Paul expressing his contentedness. I'm content in the situation that God puts me in. I adjust my lifestyle to go along with the situation that God puts me in because I, I, I want to be in the center of His will. I can adjust myself and I can accomplish what He wants me to accomplish through His strength. No matter what the circumstances, He says, even in jail, I'm able to be content here. He thanks them for their gift and He, recognizes, and he wants them to recognize that, that in giving, they, they are growing in grace and God is meeting His needs. And so as we draw to a conclusion this tour through the book of Philippians, I want to return uh, with you to one of my uh, underlined verses, one that I I didn't share earlier. But as I found uh, that old Bible off my shelf at home, this verse is the one that was the most underlined. The the various colors over the course of my life, I I must have encountered this verse quite a bit. And this is how it goes. Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The world says you are what you eat. Paul says you are what you think. What are you putting into your mind? What are you putting into your eyes? What are you reading? What are you seeing? What are you watching? How does our entertainment stack up against this standard? Paul says, I want you to value greater pleasures than the pleasure in the world. Value greater things than the things you see around. Turn your gaze upward, and when you turn your gaze upward, you will be able to run the race of the Christian life, giving glory to God. You can run the race well. Value greater pleasures 